Glad to be here with you guys, uh, U-City. Good to see you guys, Shaw. <clears throat> Good to see you from a distance. Uh, we have many uh, friends that we dearly love on the South Side, our South Side cousins at Shaw, uh, Botanical Gardens, Sasha's. It's a beautiful place, amen? Uh, but glad to be here in the house today. Uh, if you're a visitor, welcome. I'm glad you got to see me today, and I'm glad I got to see you today uh, in Pastor Brent's absence. Uh, he texted, listen, this man doesn't know how to slow down, Pastor Brent, okay? If, if you've been here for a while, you know that you're blessed to have him as your pastor, uh, but he, t- somebody tell him to sit down somewhere, okay? <laughs> this man is texting me this morning, make sure they know I'm praying for them at a riverside in Ghana. <laughs> Just, if you didn't know, those pastoral riverside prayers hit different, okay? So y'all have been covered today. Pastor Brent, yeah, he's praying for y'all, okay? So just be encouraged today. He is praying for you guys. He's praying for me. Uh, The Lord is in the house already, and so we're grateful to be here. Uh, My name is Todd Gintiman, uh, hard G on the front of that, not Gintiman like cinnamon, but Gintiman. And uh, I bring you greetings from Graceway Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, I'm a native St. Louis. I'm in, yeah, amen. There we go, Kansas City. The only football in the state, right? There we go. So it's... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Get it where you fit in, okay? Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, I'm a native St. Louisan and uh, moved to Kansas City three years ago. I have a deep affection for one family church, for your pastor, uh, and for his family. And so grateful and honored to be here today. Uh, we're, we're going through a series called Chosen. Uh, we're week three in that series. I watched Pastor Brent beautifully set it up uh, two weeks ago in week one. And then last week, I watched my brother Peter. I don't know what I'm supposed to do this week to follow up what uh, Peter did last week. Uh, but I, I'm going I'm to do my best. And he, he had the guns out. You know, like sun's out, guns out. I was like, man, this man is impressive. So I'm going to do what I can. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask the Lord to get me out of the way, put a spirit uh, in my place. And uh, I woke up this morning at 2.30, uh, and the Lord told me the authority is in the letter. And so that's what I came today to do is to preach the letter and see if we can find the Lord in it. He can exp- uh, ex- enlighten our hearts to the truth within his word. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 today. Uh, we got a lot of work to do, so I want to jump in. I'm going to read. Uh, we're going we're gonna to camp out in the whole chapter of Matthew 9. And so flip to Matthew 9 if you have a paper Bible. Amen? Yeah, uh-huh. So, some seasoned saints in the house. You still got that paper with you. You want to hear some pages rustling, amen? All these young folks with the glow of the app on their face, huh? <laughs> we rebuke the glow. Uh, and now open your app. You know, there's no shame, no shame in the app game, okay? So open your app, uh, open your Bible to Ma- Matthew chapter 9. We're going to camp out in the whole chapter. I'm going to read just the first few verses, pray, and we're going to get into it today, amen? All right, this is what the Word of God says from Matthew Chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he, being Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, catch that, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their, what's it say? Thoughts. Said, why do you think evil in, the, in your heart? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. I want to preach to you today from the idea Jesus gets next to those in need. Jesus gets next to those in need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that you have given authority to your word, that we can not sit over it and read it, but we can sit under it and let it read us. So God, give us um, faith this morning to submit ourselves to your word. Give us faith this morning to be obedient to the leading of your spirit. Uh, God, get me out of the way. Holy Spirit, take up residence in this pulpit and speak to your people a timely word. Uh, for such a time as this. So God, we pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Uh, so this idea of Jesus gets next to those in need. The, the idea of putting yourself in proximity to those in difficult positions can be a little daunting of a task, can it? Like You're like, hey, I got enough troubles of my own. I'm not really trying to be around you. It can be a daunting task. And 78 years ago, uh, this very month, there was a young German Christian professor and theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of y'all know that name, who was executed by the Nazi regime this, 78 years ago this month. He spent his late 20s and 30s teaching and preaching and writing about the good news of Jesus. He, he wrote about how following Jesus was a costly endeavor, that uh, he wrote about the, we are justified by the grace of through faith in Jesus Christ, and that we as believers ought to relish the opportunity to be in community together. He gave one of his most famous lectures called Christ the Center in 1933, the same year that Adolf Hitler would take reign in Germany. During Hitler's reign, Bonhoeffer would find his books banned. He would find his teaching license at the University of Berlin to be revoked. And then he began to play a major role in what was known in Germany as the Confessing Church. You see, in Germany during this time, the church split into two factions. There was the National Church, which gave its allegiance to the Nazi party. And there was the Confessing Church, which claimed allegiance to Christ alone. Oh, that we would all be a part of the Confessing Church. Amen? Yeah. In 1939, as World War II began to rage... Bonhoeffer and other German theologians were, were shipped out of the country to keep them safe during wartime. The idea was that they would get to a, a neighboring country and stay there until the war was over so they can continue their work and writing and preaching and teaching ministry. Bonhoeffer stepped foot in New York City only for a month, as long as it took him to book a return trip to Germany. Because he knew the call in his life was to rebuild the church after the war. And how could he do that when he would abandon the church during his darkest hour? So as long as it took him to get a boat trip back to Germany, he hightailed it back. During his time back in Germany from 1939 to 1945, he began to work with other organizations to overthrow the Nazi party. He, he, he battled this idea of not returning violence for violence and, and wrote his, his seminal work that he never finished because of his death called Ethics, in which he argued the, the cause of, of, of uh, pacifism in light of extreme violence. And in 1945, he was taken uh, prisoner because of some of his 
the, the works he was involved in to overthrow the Nazi party, he was thrown into a prison in a concentration camp. Many of the people that were also there, many other prisoners, say that while he was in prison, much like Paul, he kept preaching the whole time he was there. He preached the gospel to other prisoners, and they say that when he was being prepared for his execution, that he was preaching to his executioners. One writer said that one of the last words that he said to his executioners was, this is the end of me and the beginning of my life. Amen. Amen. What a testimony, right? You see, Bonhoeffer understood that the call of Jesus is to be next to those in need. When facing the opportunity to flee, he returned. You see, he got next to those in need, and getting next to those in need can, can be a terrifying thought, can it? Uh, especially in light of the West that we live in today. You see, we protect ourselves from those who might require something of us. We historically have insulated ourselves from those most in need, right? We have hospitals where sick people go. We have homes where older folks go. Uh, we have compassion fatigue because every day on social media we are uh, attacked by all the issues around the world that we have to have empathy for. And you can't go to a restaurant or a grocery store without being asked to round up for some initiative the grocery store has. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it, right? Do you want to round up for global tree aid? No, I don't even, I don't even like trees like that. So you'll be at the grocery store with a $1.95 total and don't want to give a nickel to whatever they're asking for. Well, you want to round up to $2? No, I want these donuts and I want to leave. You see, we, we insulate ourselves from need, don't we? But there's so much need that it's overwhelming. But you see, it's not just Bonhoeffer, it's not just Jesus, and it's not just Dietrich Bonhoeffer that called to us to get next to those in need. Don't forget where y'all came from, Christians what our heritage is in the faith. You see, Moses had a burden, didn't he? And he interceded on behalf of God's people and led them out of bondage from Egypt. Ruth had a love for her mother-in-law that in her darkest hour after losing her husband and her sons, Ruth would not leave her mother-in-law's side but got next to her in her need. Nehemiah heard about the vulnerability of God's people in Jerusalem when the city walls had fallen down, and it burdened him. And so he risked his life and position to go back to Jerusalem, to be next to those in need and rebuild the city. Esther heard that pe the people of God were in danger from a plot to destroy them, and she risked her life and leveraged her position as queen to deliver people from safety. Rahab realized the people of God were entering into the promised land, and she used the little she had, her house, to hide some spies so the people of God would get what God had promised. Paul had a burden that the good news of Jesus Christ would not just stick with the people of Israel, but would get to the Gentile people. And so he went to people that needed hope beyond this world. You see, Jesus' people have always been getting next to those in need, haven't they? Yeah, they have. So, so who are the people in need that Jesus got next to? Who are the people that Jesus is calling us to be like him and get next to? I want to walk through three different types of people in our text today that Jesus got next to in their time of need. The first type of person that Jesus got next to was the physically afflicted. Jesus got next to those who were physically afflicted. See, there were physical needs all around Jesus everywhere. This dude was multiplying fishes and loaves, okay? If Pastor Brent was multiplying Big Macs in his hands, 
this church would explode, y'all, okay? Y'all see what Big Mac land did for the, the, the Cardinals. Big Mac, if one family church was Big Mac land, it'd be like busting at the seams. People were like, man, this guy is providing for physical needs. And so they kept coming out. One of the great stories here in Matthew chapter 9 that we're told is our, the story from our beginning text, the story of a man who was paralyzed. And I love this story. It says, behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed in verse 2. And when Jesus saw, I love this part. Don't miss this. When Jesus saw, what does it say? Their faith. Say their faith. He said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, let's stop here for a second. The the thing that the, the text highlights for us is not the faith of the paralytic, is it? It's the faith of his friends. What that tells me is y'all need some better friends. Yeah, y'all need some better friends. Because there's times, listen, I don't know how long this man was paralyzed for, but for some reason his hope was gone. And when you have hope that is failing, you, you, need, have, you need friends who have hope bigger than yours. You need some friends, because some of y'all got some raggedy friends. I, don't, I, had to, I had to watch my salvation for a second. Yeah, I had to check myself for a second. Thank you, Lord. Some of y'all got some raggedy friends, and, and you think they're going to do something for your life, but there will come a time where your hope will fail you. And when that moment happens, you need some people who will lay your hopeless self on a rug and carry you to Jesus. And when Jesus says, sees them and says, hey, I'm going to help you because of the faith of your friends. You need some believing friends in your life. Mm. I love what it says next. It says, behold, some of the scribes, some of the religious leaders around him said to themselves, not out loud, but to themselves, This man, Jesus, is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, say thoughts. Mm. Yeah, said, why do you think evil in your heart? What's easier, for me to forgive some sin or to fix his body? But so you know that the Son of Man has authority over such things. Go ahead and get up and walk home, my man. And he did it, didn't he? The first thing he does, he doesn't heal his body first. He heals his heart first. Now, you and I know, if if I got some seasoned saints in the room, you have to believe and repent to be forgiven of your sin, right? I didn't hear, hear a word of repentance from this paralyzed man, yet his sins were forgiven. What does that tell us? The answer is in the text. The word has the authority, amen? The next line says, When the scribes saw it, they said, this man's blaspheming. And Jesus said, why do you say these things in your heart? They didn't say a word either, but God knew, Jesus knew what they were thinking. So something tells me this paralytic man knew that he needed forgiveness. And his heart's cry was to be forgiven by God and restored. And Jesus looks at him and says, your greatest need is not your physical healing, but your spiritual healing. And without a word being spoken, so I'm here to tell you today, if you can even muster the words that I need you, God, he can hear the cry of your heart. He knows what you're hoping for. He knows what you're longing for. And this is a word for you today. Get some better friends and open your heart to what God is doing. Amen? Mm. Man, 
But this is the only story of a, a person who had physical affliction that Jesus healed. We see that in, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 20 through 22, there was a woman with an issue of blood. Verse 20, and behold, a woman who'd suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I get next to him and touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. I love this beautiful text of this woman with the issue of blood who knew that she had a problem and had been to many healers, I imagine, over the course of 12 years. But she knew that this Jesus was different. She didn't need a word from him or a spell from him or some concoction that he could give her. He just needed, she just needed to get next to him. I, I love the other gospels. They say that when she came through the crowd and touched the hem of his garment, Jesus felt power flow out of him. Now, she wasn't the only person touching Jesus, was she? It was a crowd of people. He was shuffling through this crowd. And y'all, I don't like going to crowds. I don't, people, we just had the NFL draft in Kansas City. I was at a restaurant, and the, the waitress said, are you going to the draft today? I said, why would I do that? Why would I go stand out there and watch some people I'll never meet make millions of dollars? Why would I do that? And it's going to be all kinds of people down there. I got babies at home. I want to go home to be with my kids. And so, but Jesus is in, a, in this crowd being jostled. But something was different about her touch, wasn't it? Because it was a touch of faith. It was her faith that activated the healing power of Jesus. You see, it's not just about, listen, you can grow up your whole life around church. Ooh, come on. And never activate your faith. You can, you can dot the I's and cross the T's, and you can know your theology from alpha to omega, amen? But when you activate your faith, it does something. It, it receives power from Jesus. And when Jesus gets next to those who are physically afflicted, their faith can activate healing. Hmm. And then we see in verse 23 through 26. And when Jesus came, was, he was walking through the crowd, there, a ruler came to him. This ruler's name was Jairus. And Jairus came and said, if you would just come to my house, my daughter has died. If you would just come, I know, I know you could heal her. <laughs> and Jesus saw the father's faith. And verse 23 says, when he came to the ruler's house, he saw the band and the crowd making a commotion. They were mourning the little girl's life. And he told them, go away, for the girl's not dead, but just sleeping. And what did they do? They laughed at him because they were professional mourners. That's what they did. They would go to houses and they would mourn the loss of loved ones. They knew what death looked like. And so when Jesus said, she's just sleeping, they laughed because they knew that the girl was dead. He said, get out of the house. When the crowd had been put out, sometimes you just gotta put some people out your house. <laughs> hey, like, we can be front porch friends, but we can't be coffee table friends, amen? <laughs> he went in, and he took the girl by the hand, and he said, uh, he took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went through all the district. Now, through all three of these texts, the faith of the friends, the faith of the woman, the faith of the father, I wonder if anybody in the house or in Shaw has a testimony of Jesus getting close to you during a time of physical need, of a healing touch of God at your most vulnerable moment. 
You were on death's door, but God spared your life. The doctor gave you a negative report, but your faith was in the divine physician. You've experienced your body wasting away, but your faith grew all the more. You see, in each story, Jesus gets next to people in physical need, but before their healing is celebrated, their faith was celebrated. Don't you let physical need around you keep you from getting close to people. Because people need to borrow your faith when they lack it for themselves. Some of y'all, the opposite has happened. You have witnessed so much physical suffering or you're in a place of physical affliction and your faith is shrinking. The enemy loves to use the brokenness around us and the brokenness in these bodies to cause us to doubt the goodness of God. But don't you fall for it. God wants to use even physical affliction for our good and his glory. God, listen, y'all, I'm talking to somebody. God is building a testimony in your life. And you may not see it, but your faith in light of difficult circumstances is encouraging someone else to hold on. You walking faithfully with God right now, you think it's not making any bit of difference. But people are watching. They're watching. And they're waiting to see what will she do? What will he do when their world's falling apart? And your faith is building a testimony in your life that is blessing people around you that you'll never even know. Don't you let physical suffering in your life keep your faith from going, growing. The second thing, type of person Jesus gets next to. Jesus gets next to the socially outcast. He gets next to the physically afflicted, and Jesus gets next to the socially outcast. In every culture, we have those that are considered undesirable, don't we? People that have been pushed to the margins, neglected, forgotten people. In the Jewish culture, there were few more outcasts than a tax collector. These were Jewish people who worked for the oppressive Roman government to collect taxes on other Jewish people. Only they didn't stop at just collecting taxes. They would levy other burdens on top of their own people and collect more than what they were supposed to to make themselves rich. They were swindlers. They were thieves, abusing their own people. And one such tax tax collector is named Matthew. And he's doing this exact work when Jesus comes to meet him. I don't know if anybody has ever been right in the middle of their dirt when Jesus showed up. (laughs) Listen listen what it says, verse verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew, where? Sitting in his tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Has anybody ever been in the darkest spot in their life and Jesus spoke to them? Have you, have, you ever, have you been putting your hands to certain evils in your life and you heard a word from the Lord? This is what Jesus does. Jesus is not waiting for you to get your life right. <laughs> he wants you in the tax booth. He wants you in the tax booth and he comes to him and he doesn't say, hey, stop doing all this tax stuff. You see, Oftentimes we have a, and we don't have a vision for our lives, we have an anti-vision for our lives. We don't know what we ought to be doing, we just know what we shouldn't be doing. But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus doesn't come and say, here's all the things you need to stop doing, Matthew. He says, here's one thing you need to do. Come and follow me. You see, Jesus gives you a vision for your life when you're in the tax booth of your life. He says, Not stop doing all that stuff. He says, follow me, and we'll figure it out together. By nature of following Jesus, what did Matthew have to do? Leave the tax booth. It's in the nature of following Jesus to leave the things you were doing in the past. That's a whole, I can't even, I can't stay there, y'all. 
You see, the reality that the story of Jesus coming to the socially outcast with Matthew tells us is that you didn't discover Jesus. Jesus came and found you. You see, that's a different thing about the Christian faith, isn't it? The Christian faith isn't a discovered faith. It's a revealed faith. So when God comes to you, he reveals to you the truth of God. He reveals himself to you, and you wake up from spiritual death to spiritual life. You see, spiritually dead people don't find things. They're found. And if you walk with Jesus today, it's because he came to you in your tax booth, pulled you out of it, and said, follow me. Amen? <laughs> and he went from there, and I love what he does next. Verse 10 tells us, as, and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house. This is Matthew's house, y'all. He took Matthew out of the tax booth and went back to his house. And when he did that, it says, many tax collectors and sinners came and were chilling with Jesus. <laughs> reclining at the table. I don't know about you, but after a good meal, that top button goes, Pow! you know, <laughs> And you recline at the table, you find someplace comfortable to sit down. This is why if you invite me to Thanksgiving, there better be a recliner somewhere in the house. I don't want to sit on an uncomfortable, I'll stay at my house. Don't invite me over, there's not comfortable seating, right? And they reclined at the table. I love that Jesus goes against cultural norms. One, he's spending time with a tax collector. He doesn't just, he doesn't just invite him to follow, he doesn't just say change. He then goes to the house of the tax collector, bought with blood money bought with bribe money, bought with stolen money. And while he's there, a bunch of other fools come to the house, other tax collectors, other sinners. Sinners would be people who were either not observing the law of God, not observing the purity codes, but they were people who were outcast from the religious culture. And Jesus has compassion on them. He doesn't call them to stop their mess. He sits down and eats with them. Man, what would the church look like? If people that follow Jesus would stop screaming at the socially outcast and have a meal. We, we think the only way we can have relationships with people who aren't Christians is if they accept Jesus at the end of the conversation. No, people are not projects. Not yours anyway. Like how gracious was God with you? How patient was he with you? How many meals did somebody have to sit with your sorry behind through? Before you finally came to faith. Jesus spends time with the socially outcast. And they weren't outcast because the culture said so. They were outcast because the church was saying so. The religious folks had cast them out. And Jesus comes and says, nah, we're not doing that anymore. I'm going to sit with them. And it threw them off. And the, 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 the Pharisees said to his followers, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus, you know, Jesus always be listening. So he said... He heard it, verse 12. He said, those who were well have no need of a physician, but those who were sick. You see, the problem with these church folks, they didn't understand. Jesus, they, they, Jesus gets next to those in need, but they didn't think they had any need. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're, you know what? If you think that, I didn't even come for you. I came for people who knew they were sick. These tax collectors, they had shame. These sinners, they had shame. They've been pushed to the margins. And Jesus said, that's who I came for, folks that know they're sick. Listen, we live in a post-COVID age. If somebody shows up at church or work or at your house and even thinks about coughing, you're like, hey, hey, it's been good to see you. Good to see you. Keep socially distanced. Like, if, if you're sick, I need you to know you're sick. Amen? 
don't come over here being sick. And Jesus is like, hey, I came for the people that knew they were sick. I need folks to know that they were sick. Thirdly, he, he came not only to uh, the, the tax collectors and the sinners, he came to blind and mute men. Verse 27. I got to hurry up here. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came, and Jesus said to them, do you believe I am able to do this? They said, yes, Lord. He touched their eyes. As they were going from there, verse 32, a demon-oppressed man who was mute, couldn't speak, was brought to him. And, the de- and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He's casting out demons by power of demons. They didn't want to believe, y'all. They weren't sick. They were well. You see, these blind men and this mute man have been socially outcast, meaning they had no value to anybody. If you were a man who couldn't see, what, of what use were you? If you couldn't talk, you couldn't communicate, we had no use for you. They were, they were left to beg on the streets. And Jesus comes and heals them. I'm going to move on, but Jesus spends time with the socially outcast. Are you willing to see yourself as a needy person who can serve those around you, who the, who the society, who the church has maybe cast out. Not agree with everybody. You see, Jesus didn't agree with Matthew. He called him out. He gave him a different option. He gave him a vision for his future. And then he invited him to sit down. The third type of person that Jesus gets next to, Jesus gets next to the spiritually lost. He gets next to the physically afflicted. He gets next to the socially outcast. And he gets next to the spiritually lost. You see, when Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, Matthew had turned away from his Jewish heritage and faith to worship money. He was completely lost in the worship of getting rich. But Jesus called him not only to conversion, but to discipleship. You see, Jesus' call was greater than wealth. It was greater than wealth because it gave Matthew a greater purpose in life. It's a lot of people out here surrendering to the worship of money. And some folks in the church have succumbed to that very worship, haven't we? Because everywhere you turn, listen, every third scroll on Instagram, somebody's trying to sell me a course on how to do something with real estate that's impossible. Everybody's getting rich off courses trying to teach other people how to be rich. And some of y'all are laughing because you paid the $29.99 to get that course. Y'all did it. You bought the course. I'm... If you can't say amen, say ouch, amen. Uh, (laughs) But he calls Matthew. Matthew was spiritually lost, and Jesus calls him to a new way of life. And then in the same text, he includes Matthew with his other disciples. And in Matthew 35, he says this. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were spiritually lost. When you look out over St. Louis, it's a bunch of lost folks trying to figure out which way to go. And he, he turns to his disciples, including Matthew, and he teaches them the harvest is plentiful. It's the laborers that are the problem. Therefore, stop shaming the culture. Stop shaming the culture. The culture ain't the problem. We don't have enough laborers to love people. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. And then, he doesn't just show them what it looks like to get around the needy. 
He, he doesn't just call the needy to himself and teach them. He then, in verse 1 of chapter 10, he sends out the 12 apostles. He says, now you go. Do what I've done. You see, this is what Jesus does. He, he gets next to people in need. He calls them to greater purpose, and then he sends them back in to rescue more people. If you've been rescued by Jesus, this is your story. If you're not going back in to rescue people, that's just because you're not following what he's telling you to do. Who is around you? Who's the afflicted? Who's the outcast? Who's the lost? Who's he sending you to? The question isn't, is he sending you? The question, who's he sending you to? Jesus walks through a series of interactions where he sees physical needs around him. He's confronted with the socially marginalized, face-to-face with a lost generation. At every turn, he chooses to get close to need. Then he teaches his followers to go and do the same, and in a genius move, he pushes them out of the nest and into the harvest. I want to close with this, and then I'm in my seat, I promise you. One of the the funniest things about uh, having little kids in your life is that they uh, mispronounce and make up words. Yeah, you, and, and as a parent of little kids, you, don't, you A, don't want them to grow up out of it, and you don't want anybody to correct them and tell them the right pronunciation. I, w- I want to keep that little uh, speech impediment as long as possible, right? At least to like fifth grade. <laughs> then, then it's going to be like bullying, I don't, I don't want to mess with all that. <laughs> but my oldest child, when she was in preschool, she was the queen of, of mispronouncing and making up words. And one of uh, our favorite was what she made up this word. Y'all, she made up this word, benext. Benext. Uh, B-E-N-E-X-T, okay? Benext. When, when she wanted help with something, uh, or when she was just feeling lonely, uh, she would pat the chair next to her and say, can you come benext to me? <laughs> Daddy, Daddy, come sit benext to me. She wanted to be beside her and next to her. So she combined beside and next to benext. Uh, so I could be close to her that she, close enough she could feel me next to her. M- mommy, she would say, can you, can you sit next to me for a little bit? And when we got next to her, what would she do? She would scooch as close as possible to us. Y'all, Jesus has done everything possible to get next to you. <laughs> he stepped down from heaven. He put on flesh. He got on a cross. He got up out of the tomb. And when we put our faith in all that he's done, he sends us his promised Holy Spirit to get right up next to us so that we can have the power to go get next to somebody else. Amen? Jesus is, Jesus is calling you, just like he does, to get next to those in need. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. God, that you got next to us. God, in our deepest need. God, I pray for those in the room who are living in pride right now, God, that you would help them to see that they are needy. They are afflicted, they are outcasts, God, and they are lost without you. Draw us to yourself. God, for my Christian brothers and sisters in the room, God, help us to not deny the call of Jesus on our life, to not flee from a war-torn place, but to go back in to to help rebuild, to be next to the people that Jesus is calling us to be next to. God, thank you for your promised Holy Spirit that gives us the power to do all these things. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen.